0: The Lord be with you. with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. I bear greetings this. Rainy morning here in Boston at Boston University's Marsh Chapel. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as university chaplain for community life here at Marsh Chapel. I bear greetings on behalf of our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, as he is away this Sunday. A special word of greeting to our guest preacher this morning, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, no uh, stranger to those of you who have been with us for a while now, having served as uh, Dean of Marsh Chapel from 2003 until 2006, immediately preceding Dean Hill. Dr. Neville also served as uh, Dean of the School of Theology for many years, and he is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy, Theology, and Religion here at Boston University. We are grateful for his presence and his bearing the word in our midst this morning. Welcome, too, to our very own Inner Strength Gospel Choir under the direction of Herb Jones. Always wonderful to have your voices with us, lifting us up in the praise of God. And so, too, we stand as we are able in the praise of God this morning. Let us pray. O Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Dear friends, as we gather this morning, we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and we offer our lives and ourselves to God in confession for all that has been, for all that we fail to be in this moment, and for all that as we step out in faith, we will fail to live up to in the future. We pray together, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Friends, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to
1: God. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 3 through 11 and 15. Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am Joseph. Is my father still alive?' But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come closer to me.' And they came closer. He said, "'I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest.' God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to the Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay." You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after this his brothers talked with him.
2: A lesson from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 35 through 38 and 42 through 50. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, God gives of the body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
3: Please join me in reading Psalm 37 responsively with the antiphon. Do not fret because of the wicked, do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their refuge in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and rescues them. He rescues them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Now, please stand as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel.
4: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Glory to you, But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back." The Gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Christ.
5: Hello, it's good to be back. And with deep gratitude, I thank the Reverend Dr. Professor Dean Hill for the invitation to preach today. One of the best things I have ever done was to be instrumental in hiring him to improve the preaching when I finished my term as dean here. Beth and I have been associated with Marsh Chapel since the fall of 1988, and we've seen many changes. Robert Thornburg was the dean in those early days, and his ministry focused primarily on undergraduates especially the athletes. He attended nearly every athletical context. He was succeeded by the Reverend Hope Lucky, who focused on undergraduate women evangelicals. I succeeded Hope in 2003, and focused on making Marsh Chapel's pulpit a leading intellectual voice for Christianity in the nation. (coughs) When Bob Hill came in 2006, he actually did make it a leading intellectual voice. Ray Bouchard came here with me, and he now presides over what is most likely the most ambitious university chapel in the country. Scott Jarrett came with Hope Lucky, and with Justin Blackwell, uh, has uh, made our music program second to none in New England. Many on our staff now, including Brother Larry Whitney, who always puts the initials for low C plus after his name. Uh, they were around as students during my time, like Jay Reed and Mark Ray began coming during my tenure. What a great privilege it is for me to see so many more of you, so many new since my days as Dean. The changes have been wonderful. (coughs) To be sure, some things seem not to have changed. Some of you have been coming to Marsh Chapel since the days of Bob Thornburg. Thornburg himself was the third Bob to be dean of the chapel. I'm the fourth and Bob Hill is the fifth. The acoustics of this chapel remain great for music and wretched for the spoken word, despite many improvements in loudspeakers and microphones. There are at least five levels of floors in the building, making real elevators almost impossible. We are stuck with the outside lift that Thornburg installed. Still, even these seemingly unchanged things have changed at least by getting older. Some of you have knee joints that agree with me. Let me call your attention to our three scriptures about change for today. One about an incident in one of the world's most dysfunctional families. One about St. Paul's bizarre ideas about resurrection and immortality. And one about Luke's strange portion of his sermon on the plain. The Genesis reading is part of the story of Jacob the part where his son, Joseph, reunites the family. Now, Jacob was the son of Isaac, the first shlemiel in recorded history, to my knowledge. Isaac, as a boy, was almost killed by his father to prove Abraham's faithfulness to God. As an old man, Isaac was tricked by his wife and Jacob into giving his blessing to the wrong son, Jacob, as a young man, was strong, if not particularly ethical, and did plot to secure his father's blessing. That belonged to his brother Esau. Isaac sent Jacob to his uncle Laban to get one of his daughters as a wife. The candidates were Jacob's first cousins, if you keep track of biblical family practice. He fell in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and served Laban seven years to pay for her. But on the wedding night, Laban substituted the veiled older daughter, Leah, for Rachel, and so Jacob ended up married to Leah instead. Still wanting Rachel, perhaps as well as Leah, Jacob worked for Laban another seven years, and finally married Rachel too. The two wives constantly fought. Leah bore Jacob the sons Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. With a concubine, Jacob had Dan and Naphtali. With another concubine, Jacob had Gad and Asher. Leah became fertile again and bore Jacob's sons Issachar and Zebulun. (coughs) Then, last, Rachel bore Jacob Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin, the last born. You will note that the sons of Jacob were ancestors to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name won from his fight with the angel. Look all this up if you're intrigued. With all those warring mothers, the sons of Jacob were hostile to one another, but especially to Joseph, the first son of Rachel Jacob's favorite wife. You remember how they were offended by Joseph's coat of many colors and sold him to Midianites who took him to Egypt. In Egypt, Joseph worked his way up from slavery to friendship with the Pharaoh who made him prime minister of the kingdom. (coughs) Pardon me. This is where our story takes up today. During a great famine, Jacob's other sons, except for Benjamin, the youngest, came to Egypt to beg for grain. Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize him. He sent them back home with instructions to bring him Benjamin, which they did. And as you can see from our text, Joseph, after some trickery, reconciled himself to his brothers. They brought their father to Egypt where Jacob enjoyed the greatest hospitality and reunion with Joseph. The good times of Jacob's family in Egypt lasted for generations until there was a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. The moral of the story is that at least for a few generations, the enmity within Jacob's family was overcome and they lived reconciled with one another and in the good graces of the Egyptians. What an extraordinary thing for such a dysfunctional family. Everyone changed. In the time of famine, the Egyptians became super generous and the household of Jacob was happy. Um, A moral of this story for us (coughs) is that the enmity, enmity between nations, between parties, between families can indeed be overcome. Appearances to the contrary, those of us who have been aggrieved because of race, nationality, religion, or anything else, can change to have the spirit of forgiveness, and forgiveness can bring about peace and happiness. Remember, Joseph said that his brothers ought not think of themselves as guilty for doing something horrible to him but that God used this to put Joseph in high position where he could help them. Joseph not only effected the vast change of reconciliation in his family, he changed his older brothers from guilty to being instruments of a great good. Now, of course, we don't really know what happened in the Jacob story. Even the part about Joseph being the prime minister of Israel does not have verification from any other source. We know only what the biblical sources say. The case with St. Paul's discussion of immortality in 1 Corinthians is very different. We know a lot about the range of opinions about the topic in Paul's day. Now the basic Jewish view prior to the encounter with Greek thought when Alexander conquered the area was that the death of the body and its decomposition meant the death of the person with no separable soul that lasted long. Some people thought that the soul lasts a short time in Hades after death and then dissipates like smoke. In Jesus' time, the Greek influenced Pharisee party that Jesus followed, he was a Pharisee, believed in the resurrection of the dead, not the dissipation of the person. The older Sadducee school teased Jesus and the Pharisees about this. Remember when they asked Jesus whose wife a woman would be in the resurrection, who had married several brothers. That was supposed to be a joke in those times. Some people believe that only the fortunate would be resurrected by God, and that the others would just die. The few who would be resurrected had to be given a new embodiment, either immediately upon death or at a much later last judgment. Others believe that the human soul is separable from the body and is itself naturally immortal. For these natural immortalists, some people found a new life in heaven, but if they didn't merit heaven, there had to be a hell for them to go to. Later Christians, in medieval times, elaborated the place for the next life to include limbo for unbaptized infants and purgatory for the purification of sinful souls that they would eventually go to Uh, eventually the purgatory souls would get to heaven. No one in Jesus' time, however, would think about limbo and purgatory. St. Paul accepted the natural cosmology or metaphysics of his day, that said that the universe exists in layers with different physical properties for each layer or plane. On the plane of earth, people had physical bodies that die and decay The higher levels had incorruptible physical properties, like layers of angels all the way up to God. Planes lower than the earth had tormented physical bodies where the demons were. Souls sometimes can traverse from one plane to another. Remember Paul's hymn in Philippians, where Christ lives at the top with God, then descends to earth where he takes on a corruptible physical body as a slave. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said that the afterlife consists in obtaining an incorruptible body and that Jesus assures that those who believe in him will be given an incorruptible body at the last judgment. Paul believed that the last judgment would come within his lifetime, very soon although a few Christians already had died. The souls would exist, bodiless, from the time of death until the last judgment, resurrection. Now, many Christians today believe this, and many other Christians also believe that people are raised with incorruptible bodies immediately after the death of their corruptible physical bodies. Either of those theories is a version of reincarnation that was almost universally assumed in South Asia let well, India uh, and that came to Israel through the Greeks. All of these opinions concern the afterlife as coming or not coming within time after the end of historical temporal life. Now the authors of Ephesians and Colossians whom scholars believe now to have been students of Paul, developed what scholars call a realized eschatology. Eschatology means the last things, and realized means it's already come. This is the belief that it's not the future, but an eternal and present relation with God that counts. Christians are baptized into the death and resurrection with Christ and now already live rightly related to God. Therefore, those letters say, we should live with love and generosity now in this life, not worrying about any life to come. Eternity does not mean something that lasts forever, like two people and a ham. My wife insisted that I put that line in. (laughs) Eternity is rather the creative act that creates all moments as future, all as present, and all as past, all together, eternally together, although temporally unfolding. Given what we know about the dependence of the soul on the brain, body, health, and socialization, many of us now do not believe in life after death, but rather in an eternal relation to god that we live out within the days of our temporal life i myself believe that our day-to-day temporal life is but an abstract part of our real concrete life that is eternal within god's eternal creative act the realization of this eternal identity transforms our temporal lives in mind-blowing ways my book Eternity and Time's Flow, advertisement, explains my theory with lots of arguments and illustrations. Acceptance of any of these views of immortal or eternal life, however, causes huge changes in how we live day to day. We come to live before God, not just within the world of our own interests, which is the usual way we live. I don't know what you all believe about these matters, about which Paul wrote. All of them have biblical warrant, and they are all hard to believe. It is much easier to focus on Christianity as about how to live now, which is the position of the part of Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke Now, in keeping with Dean Hill's emphasis on comparative gospels, I urge you to look up Matthew's Sermon on the Mount that encompasses three long chapters, chapters five, six, and seven. Read those against Luke's chapter six, beginning at verse 17, a terse rearrangement and reinterpretation of the earlier text Matthew and Luke have in common that neither Mark nor John has. Matthew was writing for a primarily Jewish audience of Christians and so emphasized how Jesus sharpened Jewish law and attacked hypocrisy regarding Jewish practice. Luke was writing for Greek Christians. And he pretty much ignored Jewish law and interpreted Jesus' sayings simply as, how to live before God. For Luke, the Christian life is not so much about obeying God's law in our heart, as it is about being like God in what we do. Because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, for that reason, we should love our enemies, be good to everyone, including sinners, and lend without expecting to be repaid. For Luke, Christian life is not so much about being good citizens of God's law-governed kingdom as it is about being children of the Most High. Children succeed by taking on their parents' work and we should continue the work of God who loves everyone, even the sinners. This is not the wrath of God theory, this is the love of God theory. The Greek Christians can understand that without knowing much about the kingdom of Israel. So can we. Is it not shocking to learn that we should become children of God and heirs to God's work? What greater change can we be called to than to behave like the merciful creator who is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. The Bible, of course, had no conception of justice as the attempt to change social structures, to eliminate poverty or prejudice. It even had nothing against the social institution of slavery. Those insights did not arise until the modern era and we late modern Christians can add them as part of what we need to do to be just in the world. Luke would remind us that God loves the billionaires and racists and loved the slave owners, no matter how bad they are in a calculus of good and evil. A condition of us loving the wicked is that we forgive them. Forgive the wicked, as we must do, to be like God. This is not just forgiving those who offend us, this is forgiving those who are objectively wicked. What a change in the way we ordinarily think about justice. Imagine what the congregation of Methodists meeting in St. Louis about the gay issues would have to think about these commands about Jesus concerning love. Our three texts today are about changes. Joseph finishes the Jacob story by reconciling his family and turning his older brother's guilt into God's instrument for reconciliation. Paul's understanding of Christian salvation is exchanging our perishable bodies for imperishable bodies so that we can rise with Jesus to the plane of God and enjoy fellowship with the divine. The journey upward through different planes of reality might not be how you think of a right relation with God, but there surely is a change from living in ordinary history to living in a history that is part of the eternal creation. Luke's understanding of true Christian life is not just to be good by worldly standards, nor even to be obedient to divine commands, but to become children of God acting like God in daily life. How different that is from the way we ordinarily live. These three texts draw a distinction between the steady way things are and the constancy of change. Forget about how things are. Pay attention to how they are changing. By the imitation of God, make the changes for the better, that lie within your means. Look for new ways to make changes that you otherwise would not notice. See that in making these changes, you are part of God creating with love, even for the ungrateful and wicked with whom we are intimately bound. Remember that we have two bodies, as Paul would say. Our historical body lives day to day with all the ambiguities of life, our successes, and our failures. That historical body is only part of our eternal body within which we are connected with all things including the distant past and the distant future with which we are connected. We realize that today's body is only a part of our eternal body when we realize that we can accept the fact that what we do today obligated as it is to be just, cannot escape the love of God even if we do what we ought not, which we do. Who knows? Our best intentions today might be great evils that will be shown up in future generations. We can take comfort that even the worst of us are part of the eternity of God's creative act. Today we must act. In eternity, we just rest in the bliss of God creating. Change exists within eternity. Amen. <laughs>
6: now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and live life, live up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, lead me Lord. That we may see God's presence in the lives of even the enemy let us offer to God the needs of the whole world saying Lord in your mercy hear our prayer living God you spoke to your people of old give to your church ears to hear your voice speaking in our day even though those we name as enemy Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, for the nations of the world, we pray, let not our anger consume us. Take away from us false virtue and break down all dividing walls of hostility. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord in Jesus, you called us to sacrificial love. Enable us to serve all those in need, the poor, the homeless, the sick, and the dying. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, comfort all those in distress. Let us pray for the refugee and the immigrant, that they may find places of refuge and solace from the conflicts in their countries. Comfort all those in distress. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, in Jesus, you have given us the first fruit of your dominion. Plant your life giving spirit in us and in our land that we may bring forth justice and peace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for our human family attending the special general conference of the Methodist Church. Allow your spirit to work through your children for an inclusive way forward for all your people. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, you formed humanity of the dust of the earth. Reform us into the likeness of your Christ. May your mercy pour into our laps. May we see ourselves as one with those we accuse and so know the joy of forgiveness given and received through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. And now with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come,
0: peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you once again here to the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew, passing that book along to your neighbors so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. I will note that next Saturday we will be hosting a study retreat here at Marsh Chapel. More information and registration is available on the chapel website, along with all of our other upcoming services and activities at bu.edu slash chapel, where you may also find the opportunity for online giving. A warm word of welcome and thanks once again to Dr. Neville for bearing the word in our midst this morning. And, uh, Also to our Inner Strength Gospel Choir for their earlier anthem and for their singing Wonderful is Your Name, words and music by Hezekiah Walker as the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering. Now walk in love as Christ loves us and offering in sacrifice to God. the blessings of this and all our days, we thank you, gracious God. Accept, we pray, not just this money, but also our lives, freely offered in gratitude for all you have done for us. Use them both in this place and wherever you might take us. Amen. Dearly beloved, here within the perspective of eternity we know that life is short and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit abide and remain with you now and always. Amen.